I tell you what, it's a little weird to be reading anything but that same passage we've been reading for 11 weeks. And that's kind of exciting. Went from a really long one over and over again to a really short one. But it's difficult to go from talking about this cosmic war going on all around us, putting on armor, standing firm in battle, to this guy's coming with a letter. I don't know, especially following up that wonderful sermon from uh, Dr. Johnson last week. But uh, we will do our best, and we'll see how long this guy can go on two verses about somebody delivering a letter. One of you challenged me to go 50 minutes. I won't tell you who. You know, I've noticed as I am sliding into middle age that I'm kind of leaning toward it, not back. As so many people I know from my class in high school, class of 96, are trying to live and dress and act and think like they're 10 or 20 years younger than they are, I tend to think and act like I'm 10 or 20 years older than I am. I've been embracing old guy things. Like complaining about loud music that isn't even music, it's just noise. Like complaining about technology changing quickly. Young people, truly young people, young at heart people, love that technology is moving quickly. I hate it. I'm like, we got it. It's good the way it is. Lock it down. There we go. When I'm dead, you can take another big leap forward. I complain when people drive too fast down my street. That's normal. Every parent does that. But I also get a little weird and suspicious if you drive too slow past my house. I stand up and go, what's going on out there? Who is that? But here's the real one, the the, the piece de resistance of leaning into being an older guy and, and, and looking ahead instead of pulling back. And that is, I've been known to complain quite a bit about the rising price of postage, which is a very old timey thing to even be aware of. But I, I don't even send that many letters, but I don't know something about it. Give me a moment here to complain about it, to gripe, if you would. Because I remember when I was in kindergarten or first grade and first started learning about how mail works and things, a stamp was 20 cents. Now, a lot of you remember when it was like a nickel, and you're like, well, that tells how young you are. And yeah, compared to some of you, I am young and spry. But 20 cents is, is quite a, a while ago, less than half of what it is now. And by the time I started junior high, it had gone from 20 cents up to 29 cents. That's another big leap. If I were just 10 years older, I would remember when stamps were six cents throughout much of the early 70s. Having been born in the late 70s, I missed that golden age. But here's the thing. For 43 years, and that's how old I am, 43 years, for 43 years, stamps were two cents. They didn't change at all. They didn't go up. They didn't say, oh, inflation. They didn't say, oh, things are... No, Two cents, that's it, that's how much. Instead of saying, here's a quarter, call someone who cared, you'd be like, here's two pennies. Write someone who cared, that was the burn, I guess. For 43 years. But in the last 30 years, it's gone up 15 times. From that 29 cents to now 55 cents. And, you know, it occurs to me that this isn't new. I've been complaining about this since I was in seminary. I remember my, my roommate shaking his head as I was like, they raised the price of postage again. And he's like, who are you writing to? And I'm like, no, it's the principal. They raised it again. And you know what he used to always say to me? Okay, how much would you charge? If I said, here's an envelope with a letter in it. I want you to take it to Tallahassee, Florida, drop it off, come back. Oh, and they need to have it 
like in two days. So you're either going to need to drive straight through or buy airfare or something. Would you do that for 40 cents? And I was like, no. And like most things that I complain about, it was just actually complaining about a convenience that we have. And when we look at the way mail worked in the ancient world, which is kind of what we're looking at today in our text, we see that there was no such thing as a Roman postal service that everyday people could use, not even Roman citizens like Paul. That if you wanted to send a letter, and let's face it, Paul almost always wanted to send a letter, you had to either find someone who was already making the trip and get them to take it for you and hope that they were going to do it and trust that they would deliver it, or you would have to recruit someone, probably hire them to make a special trip, often a difficult or dangerous journey over hundreds of miles over land and sea, just to hand someone a piece of mail. And that could be very expensive. If you did get someone who would do it for free, you'd want to make sure they were very trustworthy, someone honest, someone who you knew you could trust not to change things or just chuck it and keep the money or, or keep the free trip across the Aegean Sea or whatever it was. And if needed, it was someone who, as the courier of that epistle, that letter, could explain things that might be a little bit muddled or hard to understand. And that's what we see happening here in Ephesians and most of the epistles of the New Testament, that the, the delivery person is also an ambassador for the apostle with authority to kind of explain what's going on and even what these words mean. Because they were there when it was written much of the time. So, I don't want to get ahead of myself, but at this point in the closing of the letter, it would be normal for Paul to take the pen from the scribe who's writing it down and to then write something in his own hand, a line or two, to authenticate it. And we see Paul do this throughout the New Testament. In Galatians, he says, see how big I write when I write with my own hand, meaning his eyes are going. In 2 Thessalonians, he says, I write, Paul writes this with my own hand. In 1 Corinthians, he does the same thing at the end. And possibly here, I do think it's, it's quite likely that when they're reading this letter, they see the penmanship change and go, oh yeah, that's Paul's handwriting, authenticating the letter. And this becomes important when there are instructions given as regards the person who's handing you the letter. That'd be kind of an awkward situation, especially if, as often seems to be the case, the person taking the letter is also taking the letter and delivering it, saying, here, this is written in my handwriting. It's from someone else, but it says, be really nice to me. Take care of me for a while. Let me crash with you, etc." But often, Paul not only commends these people who are his couriers, but he, he asks them to listen to them. Not just treat them well and then send them back, but listen to them. And he almost loans them and says, they've been ministering to me, but I've asked them to minister to you and to the church there and to serve God in your midst. This is something we see in Romans when he says, Phoebe is delivering this thing, a deacon of the church. And Chentria, I want you to listen to her. I want you to be good to her. Epaphroditus in Philippi. And here, the same thing with Tychicus. Tychicus brought this letter. He also brought Colossians and Philemon and possibly 2 Timothy, some people think. Obviously then, very trustworthy person. And I think that uh, it's significant that this is the only other person named, other than Paul, in this whole letter. You know, when we get to the end of other epistles we've studied, there's that whole section I've got to figure out what to do with, where it's like, tell Doreen I said hi, you know, tell Derek he still owes me 30 shekels or whatever. There's all this personal stuff. And we're like, what is this? Well, in this case, the only other person named is Tychicus. 
And speaking of being named, I don't like that I did that. Tychicus, the name, comes from a Greek verb, to cogno, which means uh, to meet by chance or fortunate coincidence. You heard of people probably today named Chance. That always makes me think of that uh, Van Damme movie where Van Damme was Chance and Wilford Blimley was supposed to be French and he would always be like, Chance! And it was really stupid. But in this case, his name is, is Chance or Fortunate and there's kind of an ironic twist to it because certainly he sees his connecting with Paul as fortunate, but not because of fortune or chance, but rather because of the providence of God that brought these men together who become not only fellow laborers in the gospel, but also become incredibly good friends. Do you ever look back at your life and say, wow, that chance encounter became a deep friendship, a lifelong friendship? One of my best friends in the world, Ted Kluck, he's been here speaking before for the, the dirty rat move to Tennessee. But I met him because we walked into Schuler Books in Eastwood when it was still there. And there was a big tower of books called Why We're Not Emergent by two guys who probably should be. And I went, this book looks like it was written for me. Oh my goodness, so interesting. And then it said, signing tonight. And I was like, oh, there these guys are who wrote it. Kevin DeYoung, Ted Kluck, and then just became good friends. And I look back and go, wow, what if I hadn't happened to be there or see those books? But I don't think it would just happened to happen. God is at work if we will look for opportunities to connect with one another on this deep level to become fellow workers, to become brothers and sisters in Christ. So Paul, he, he met these guys, uh, it was a pair of them, Tychicus and Trophimus. He met them in Ephesus. He seems to have picked them up the first time he was really there for an extended period doing ministry in his third missionary journey. You probably remember all that from our study of Acts a couple years back. They went with him, and quickly Tychicus became a trusted companion and co-worker of Paul's, so much so that he serves as a representative of Paul on several occasions, not just delivering uh, the mail, but doing things like uh, relieving Timothy and being in charge of overseeing the church in Crete where there was a difficult situation. He trusts him deeply. He'd helped gather the offering for the saints in Jerusalem and then he'd gone along to deliver it with Paul. And he'd stayed with Paul during his imprisonment here and he stays with him beyond that. So it's a natural choice for him to go deliver this letter to the church in Ephesus. After all, he's probably himself Ephesian. He's probably known by some of them there. Trophimus is called Trophimus the Ephesian. Trophimus and Tychicus are kind of a pair. We meet them in Ephesus. You do the math. I can't tell you for certain, but it seems like he's probably an Ephesian himself. But his journey, no matter if it was a homecoming or if, if it was going to be uh, joyous or whatever, winds up being very difficult. Now, the smart thing to do is what we almost always see happening in the New Testament, and that is to deliver a number of letters in one kind of round trip, making the best use of time. Even before MapQuest, people could figure out how to do that, go from point A to B to C to D, and then back home. And in this case, he's got three letters on him. He's got Ephesians, Colossians, and Philemon. And he's got these three things that need to be delivered, two of them to Colossae, one of them to Ephesus. He's not alone doing this. He has at least one other person, Onesimus, with him. We'll talk a little about Onesimus in a minute. But they would have had a difficult journey ahead of them, having to cross Italy on foot, sail the Adriatic Sea, 
They're going to have to uh, then pass through Greece again, almost certainly on foot before sailing over the Aegean Sea to the coast of Asia Minor. And well, if you look at the book of maps at the back of your Bible, you'll see that Ephesus is a coastal city. You've got to go 100 miles inland to get to Colossae. So this whole thing is like a colossus of a trip, if you will. Now, it's going to have uh, a number of stages to it. He's going to have to deal, first of all, when they get to Colossae with this whole Onesimus Philemon thing, a little background. Onesimus was a runaway bondservant or bond slave who had fled to Rome to get lost there in the masses. There had just fortunate happened to come together once again, meeting with Paul, and there he gave his life to Jesus. Paul is now sending him back with a letter that says, this guy's a brother in Christ. You're my brother in Christ. I'm an apostle, and I could command you, but instead I'm going to say, you know the right thing to do. Welcome him back, not as a slave, but as a brother. He'll be more useful to you and you to him than you could have ever imagined. So that's what's going to happen, first of all. He's probably going to stay until the Lord's Day there, where they then read both the letter of Colossians and the letter of Ephesians to the church. He'll leave the letter of Colossians with them, and then he's going to move on, probably stopping at other churches along the way, those founded by Paul and those not founded by Paul. Then eventually he's going to find himself back with Paul to minister again to him. All of this comes naturally to Tychicus, who is described here as my beloved brethren, Or, instead of just beloved brother, the beloved brother. That's what it says in the original Greek. Ha agapetas adolphos. Ha is the. Ha agapetas. And you might say, well, yeah, he's just saying the beloved brother that you know. Maybe not. Maybe this guy has got that name. That's his title. The beloved brother. You all know Tychicus, the beloved brother. And that word there, beloved, agapetos, it's the same word that the Father uses when he says at the baptism of Jesus, behold, this is my beloved son, agapetos. You hear the word agape in there. This is a very close relationship. These guys are truly closer than brothers. Remember Proverbs 18, 24, a man of many companions may come to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. That is Tychicus. A visit from Tychicus to Ephesus is the next best thing to a visit from Paul himself. That's how tight these guys are. Not only does he call him beloved brother, he calls him faithful minister. Tychicus was with him from near the beginning of Paul's ministry to the bitter end. We read about him still being there for Paul, serving in 2 Timothy. When guys like Demas had gone AWOL and decided they loved the world more than the ministry, Paul doesn't see Tychicus just going away. He has to send him away. Go, be useful to them for a time because you are such a faithful minister. He has complete trust in him. He he doesn't have a script to stick to when he tells them all of this stuff that that we're reading about here. He, He just trusts him to be smart about it, to be faithful about it, to be truthful about it. He's a faithful minister. Faithfulness is such an important piece here. Again, this is a guy that he trusts to go to Crete, be in charge of overseeing the church, to go to Ephesus, be in charge of helping smooth these things out so there's more unity. And he doesn't say, listen, he's a gifted guy, or he's a powerful speaker, or he's a brilliant mind. No, he says he's a faithful minister. Faithfulness. That means showing up when you say you'll show up, being there and not flaking out. That means being in for the long haul. I think during 2020, a lot of churches saw which members were faithful and which were kind of fly-by-night. 
They were here and then they were gone here for a time. And others, most of our people, the vast, vast majority, we found, wow, these are faithful people through thick and thin and are able to minister to those who maybe found themselves drifting a bit and struggling a bit. He's a minister. The word there is diakonos. It doesn't mean deacon here. In chapter 3, Paul calls himself a diakonos, a minister, a servant of God. That's what minister used to mean before politics made it mean someone with a lot of clout and power. Minister meant a servant. And it should today as well. So why is he sending this guy? Ephesians 6.22, I've sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are. This, I think, explains the lack of a lengthy personal greeting section at the back of the book. Tychicus is going to tell you all this stuff. He's going to tell you who I want to say hi to. He's going to tell you how we're doing. He's going to tell you, other than that one prayer request I just gave you in writing, he'll probably give you a bunch more. Now, what exactly does he say Tychicus will tell them? Now, I'm ramping up, you guys, to the part where this will matter to your life. So, lock back in, buckle back up. This is going to get a little pedantic, though. Most woodenly, he says... He will tell you the things concerning me. That's a very wooden translation. I don't think it's good today because you can hear that and say, oh, there are things concerning Paul. He's concerned about things. What are those things? And that's not it at all. Some others have said he will tell you my circumstances. Okay, but I don't think this gets to the the depth of what we're talking about. Today, everyone is constantly sharing all their circumstances all the time. That's what Instagram is, right? All the, I'm at the Soup Spoon Cafe, I'm feeling smiley face duck emoji, and here's a picture of the Black Forest omelet I'm about to eat. That's my circumstance, but it's all very shallow and, and surfacy. I like the King James here. He will tell you my affairs. I like it because today we don't use that word very much, and we only tend to use it when, first of all, putting the word personal in front of it and telling people to back off. You stay out of my personal affairs. Here he's not saying stay out. He's saying I'm opening up my personal affairs to you guys. Or secondly, we use it when someone's about to die and they need to get their affairs in order. Now, Paul is not about to die, but he doesn't know that. He's in prison. He doesn't know which way all this is going to go. It would be on his mind to get his affairs in order. But instead of focusing on him and saying, you guys understand, he says, my affairs are that I am caring for you and ministering to you and and even a little worried about you. And so I'm writing to you. And then I want Tychicus to tell you all about what's going on with me. There's an openness here. Now, the ESV cuts to the chase, says he'll tell you both what I am doing and how I am doing. That pretty much sums it up. But I think verse 21 tells us ultimately the answer. Tychicus, beloved brother, faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. He will tell you everything. He will make known everything. Even in these public letters, Paul continually shares his life with his brothers and sisters in Christ. He shares his struggles, his victories, his infirmities, his concerns. 2 Thessalonians 2.8 We loved you so much that we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well, because you had become so dear to us. Tychicus will tell them about Paul's health, about his state of mind, about his spirit, and how he's doing. He'll tell them everything. They know Paul's affairs, and Paul sends his envoy, we'll see in a minute, to strengthen their hearts as well. This is not a distant relationship, even if it is physically distant. 
This is not a, okay, all you masses, buy my book and send in a seed offering and you'll be blessed by invisible forces type situation. Even though Paul, at this point, is world famous, known seemingly even to the emperor himself, this is close and personal. He doesn't list everybody here, probably because he was in Ephesus so long, teaching day by day that there are too many people to list. And he says that he will do this that you may know about us. And I think that that might be a little bit of a weak translation, too. And that I think that's the NASB, usually very, very strong. But know about us implies head knowledge. And there's a word for that in the Greek, oida, to know, to, to know that way. This is the word gnosko, which means to, to know more experientially. Like, I know Sean, okay? And Sean knows me, maybe, maybe too much, right? We, when you know someone, you're, you know them, not just know about them. There is a closeness where you know each other's affairs and you know each other's struggles. And he wants this with this whole church. I think we saw this from Dr. Johnson last weekend. Did we not? He did not come in, like I've seen some speakers, guest speakers and teachers, descending from on high at the national ministries level to our local church, throw out some knowledge, say, good enough, okay, and then just disappear. No, he prayed with people. He got to know people. He came down for the baby shower and stayed the whole time, although I told him that they make really good cupcakes. That might have been part of it. Then, this past week, I got like five emails from him. I got a card. In it was two copies of a refrigerator pickle recipe, one of which is supposed to go to Sean and Cindy. I mean, there's a, a growing relationship there that is not going to be... It, it would be unheard of that it would just be arm's length, distant. If the church isn't doing this, it isn't the church. We must be involved in each other's lives, other believers, and as believers motivated by the good of the community and look around at people around us and say, these people are all made in the image of God, and God has placed me in their midst. I, I think that we, we kind of have this beam-me-up Scotty situation or really beam-me-down into my phone where our phone locks us in or, or our homes lock us in, where the, the little button on your garage door opener is your, your Star Trek teleporter, where the thing goes up, you drive in, you hit the button again, and it goes down, and there you are now, just bivouacked away, and not doing anything for anyone, sharing God's grace with anyone. And this, of course, is much of what we were talking about last week in the evangelism training. But what happens often in our world today is that people close themselves off. They're living very privatized, individualistic lives. And they're even they're closed off from co-workers, neighbors, even family sometimes. Then something goes wrong in their lives, and they go, oh, no one cares about me. No one even cares. Well, you've successfully cordoned yourself off much of the time. Start by being the one who cares. Letting people in on your affairs. We don't want to be iceberg Christians where just a little bit is sticking out of the water and the rest is hidden away from everyone because, ooh, the rest of it's a mess. A, a little outside of the bowl, well, the inside is filthy. Remember, Jesus had a little something to say about that. Rather, we want to share our affairs with one another. If all people see is that little tip of the iceberg that Sunday you... Cleaned up, non-messy, always happy, too blessed to be stressed, cardboard cutout version of you, and you hold everyone at arm's length, 
That's problematic for both your spiritual development and your ability to minister to other people. I think last March, for many people, when we heard there's this thing we got to do and we don't know how long, but we got to do this, it's called social distancing and you stay away from everyone. For a lot of people, that was not unlike baptism, an outward sign of an inward reality that had already been the case for quite some time. Distanced, even socially, if physically not distanced. Having good friends in Christ, beloved brothers and sisters who really know what is going on with you is vital to walking worthy of your calling. Who know your struggles, who know your anxieties, who pray for you and celebrate your victories, who weep with you in your failures, who know your affairs. We just had communion, right, in which we commune not only with God, but we commune with one another. That's why it's the church gathered that does communion together. And this is all a two-way street, of course. Paul doesn't just say, I want you all to listen to everything about me and go, okay, okay, okay. No, he says, I'm also sending him two reasons. One, to tell you everything, what's going on with me, but also to encourage your hearts. I'm sending him so that I can indirectly encourage you. This is the best way I can encourage you right now. Paul's circumstances, they're not really great news as he shares all this information, although it is encouraging that he can maintain joy and peace and hope even in adversity, but this encouragement piece seems to be separate from the information giving. He's going to tell you, he's going to listen to you, there's going to be encouragement going on. Now this word, parakaleo, woodenly means to call alongside, but long before the New Testament was written down, it began to mean strengthen. Think about this, encouragement, right? That's a great, it's a great tool here, this English word. Encouragement, meaning take courage and put it in. Encour- like enlightenment is to take light and put it in somewhere dark. Encouragement is to take courage and put it in somewhere that lacks it. In classical Greek, this word was used to describe the exhorting of troops who were about to go into battle and eventually began to mean to give courage and heart to anyone who was facing a difficult task ahead of them. And encouragement, according to Romans 12, is a spiritual gift, and it seems Tychicus has it, Again, remember, one thing that had to happen on this trip was Onesimus had to go back to Asia Minor, had to go back to the house of Philemon with that letter in hand. Imagine what a difficult task ahead that was for him. Most difficult journey he'd ever undertaken. Most nerve-wracking thing ever. And it would take a long time. He'd have a lot of nights laying there trying to fall asleep going, I wonder what is going to happen when I get there. When he was leaving, he was leaving it all behind. No problem. Rome, I can get lost. I can have exciting adventures in my life. Now he's going back, and Paul undoubtedly chose an encouraging, comforting companion to give him courage. That key verse at the beginning of chapter 4 that I keep referencing and have for weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. Urge you is that same word. Encourage. Perikaleo. Urge. So when you're hearing courage, don't think it always soft and like petting your back and saying, shh, shh, it's okay. That's one kind of encouragement. Urging is another. Let's go. Let's go to battle. Let's go. Let's go back to Colossae. We can do this. God is with us. At the heart of our word encouragement is the word core, Latin core, Greek kurios means heart, giving heart to someone. If you've lost heart, this gives it back, encouraging your hearts, not so much your heads. Remember Ephesians 3.13, he says, I ask you not to lose heart 
over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. Don't lose heart. And I'm sending Tychicus to make sure you don't, to build you up and give you heart. So this guy in chains, in a cell, wants to comfort the church, experiencing almost no persecution. That's rich, but that's Paul. He doesn't just pray that they'll be encouraged. He shares encouragement as best he can. Now, clearly, Tychicus' presence is a great comfort and encouragement to Paul himself. But he's willing to say goodbye to him for a while, to send him away to minister to these churches, particularly the church in Ephesus. It would be a bit hypocritical, I think, for Paul to, throughout this whole epistle, have been pushing for unity and love and mutual submission and then remain himself aloof and unknowable and distant. Now, he has to stay physically distant because there's a chain holding him to the floor, but he can send his beloved minister, his friend, to remind them of his deep affection for them. I think this is, again, a core purpose of the church. We have to remind each other that we love each other. I don't know if you say that to each other. I say it to you. I think it's fun to see who gets uncomfortable and says, okay, bye, and who says, I love you back. I don't know what pastors who don't tell their people I love you are even doing. But we, we, you may not be comfortable saying that to everybody. You know, maybe you're not a, uh, as free, or maybe you, you had uh, difficult memories of people saying that in the past. I don't know. But we need to show our love to one another and that's all the more important. It can be as simple as picking up the phone. You know, I've heard people say, uh, during, during lockdown and stuff, there were people who were like, oh, hardly anybody calls me. And then since then, no one's calling me. And often I'll say, hold on, this person didn't call you? Well, they did. And this person, well, they did. But nobody else. And I think, you should get one of those new phones that dials out. Right? <laughs> I remember pay phones that would say cannot receive incoming calls. I've never heard of a home phone that's the opposite, that cannot make an outgoing call. We, we, need, to, we need to remember that, that even in chains, Paul's the one sending the encouragement. Now, some of you are very good at doing this. This week, I got a card from Jerry Ward. I'm like, I, I think I should be sending her the card. But I got the card from her, thanking Aaron and I from, uh, for visiting her uh, and, and just kind of a nice card. And I thought, wow, this is someone who knows how to encourage. This is someone who knows how to reach out no matter what's going on rather than say, oh, nobody's calling me right now. What was me? I, th I think what we need to do is find that proactive Christ-like I'll make the first move spirit and ride that through thick and thin, through good times and bad, when things seem great and everyone is happy, and when things seem desperate and lonely as well. Christ came while we were yet sinners. He made the first move. Had he waited until we were ready for him, he still would not have come. Now, it may have been partially due to the price of paper at the time, but Paul leaves the catching up, the sharing our affairs, how you're doing, for Tychicus to do in person. And I'm inclined to believe he wanted that to happen in person so that it would be personal, a real connection. If he's truly there to strengthen their hearts, it'll happen through Tychicus. His presence will be felt. I think we're losing this as well. We need to be back. I'm glad to see many people in person but I know that there are people who are, who are worried about gathering a person. There are people who have uh, immune compromise situations and stuff, and you've got to be careful, and I, I don't want anyone to go against their better judgment. 
But what I'm saying is if you can't gather with 70 people, you can gather with one or two, especially the most beautiful time of year. If you're vaxxed up, masked up, six feet apart outside, the mosquitoes have died, guys. They're, they're, they're largely on the way out. It's Michigan. It's beautiful. It's autumn. You can sit with a friend or two. We have to not buy into this myth that there is some magical world of total safety waiting for us. It's never existed. It never will. And we as Christians are the only people truly equipped to deal with that and go on living lives serving others. George Eliot said, The growing good of the world is dependent on unhistoric acts. What a great quote. Sounded better when Alistair Begg was saying it because he has that accent. But it's even good when I say it. The growing good of the world is dependent on unhistoric acts. Tychicus, even though it's, it's written down in the Bible, is kind of an unhistoric act. Uh, on the, the spectrum of the creation of the universe, the death of Christ on the cross, you know, the defeating of the Midianites, the sun standing still, Tychicus going, here you go. It's an unhistoric act. Are we willing to pour ourselves into others via unhistoric acts. During this time when so many people are locked under their phones, even if they're not locked into their homes, still isolated, chasing followers, chasing 15 minutes of fame, or with like TikTok, I guess, chasing 15 seconds of fame, it's all empty. To say, like Tychicus, you know what? I'll be the delivery boy. Sure, give me the letter. I'll go and encourage them. I will strengthen their hearts. I'll go and tell them what's going on with you. I'll go talk about someone else, not even talk about myself. I'll undertake this massive journey, or for us, perhaps not so massive a journey, to talk to a neighbor or to gather with friends, fellow believers, to let people know your affairs. As we saw in this last passage, to ask people for prayers, to be the one who cares. I'm stuck in a rhyming thing, but you get me. To say, like Tychicus, I don't have to be the center of the drama, of the story, the hero, the one doing something amazing. I can be the faithful servant, the beloved brother, the one who at the end of the day, Paul says, thank God I've got Tychicus with me. To encourage others to be encouraged, to let people know your affairs and to know theirs and listen and to care about them and to live life together. This is what the church is all about. We talk a lot in the last few weeks, especially building up to last weekend and especially looking at the armor of God about evangelism, sharing the gospel, sharing the faith with other people. But there is more to discipleship than just making the initial conversion. Discipleship means following along together. And if we get saved and come and link up via some membership connection, but we're not walking along together, we're missing out on what God intended for His church, which is that we grow together. I think if you haven't been watching The Chosen, which is this free uh, television show about Jesus' disciples, it's so amazing. We showed the first four episodes uh, a couple years ago. I'm going to show them all again, I think, in the courtyard here when the mosquitoes have really died. A little fire going, we'll watch it outside. Wonderful stuff. But one thing that just keeps on hitting me is these guys, God, in his wisdom, says, I am going to pick 12 guys and a number of women who are going to be my core group, 
and they're going to be the kind of people that are at odds with each other. Tax collector, zealot. Basically, apart from Jesus, this guy would kill this guy, this guy would turn in this guy, they'd hate each other. Bring them together. And you see them kind of just pushing against each other and pushing away from each other and slowly recognizing that in Christ, they are brothers and sisters and holding fast to each other. It's so easy to say, well, you know what, there are people I have more in common with. There are, there are easier situations. It's, it's, it's so much work sometimes to deal with God's people because they're so diverse and so many different things going on. Listen, if we want to be the sort of Christian that is held up by the very Apostle Paul as a faithful minister, a beloved brother, a beloved co-worker in the book of Colossians, then we must put aside selfishness. We have to put aside all the stuff that puts me at the center and say, I'll be like Tychicus. I'm going to go. I'm going to minister. I'm going to listen. I'm going to be open about what's going on with me. And I'm going to trust that in the midst of all that, God will be at work. Heavenly Father, we thank you for these two verses of Scripture, which after all the spiritual warfare seem rather mundane, but Lord, we thank you for this man Tychicus. And Lord, we pray that we would have a spirit that says, Lord, I'm here, use me. Not only for something that would be big and full of glory, but Lord, something that is small and needs to be done. That Lord, we would be the kind of Christians who are at your service and serve you at your pleasure and ready to take our orders and be your hands and your feet to be your words to a world that is hurting and needs to hear the gospel, to be light in the darkness, to be salt Lord, we want to do what you have called us to do. Give us hearts of service like Tychicus. In your holy name we pray. Amen.